0: Welcome to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening and subscribing. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. It's free on Apple Podcasts and other podcast apps. Today's story is about an alleged black widow with two dead husbands in her wake. Stay tuned after this main feature for some historical newspaper clips of similar cases going back as far as 1909 and up to 2003. This podcast contains details of real murder and is only for mature audiences. Discretion is advised. March 13, 2003, Raynella Dossett Leith calls 911 and reports finding her husband, David Leith, shot dead, a Colt 38 by his side. He was found in the couple's bed. Rainella says it was suicide, but she was eventually charged with murder. There was more than one shot, and it didn't look like a suicide scene. However, there was no evidence linking Rianella to the weapon or the shooting. But this wasn't her first time being a widow. Raynella's first husband, who was in the late stages of terminal cancer, also died by reportedly being trampled by cattle on the family farm. But first, we will look at the death of Ryanella's second husband, David Leith. David was 57 and the co-owner of Suburban Barbershop before he died of a gunshot wound to the head on March 13, 2003. His wife, Rainella Leith, was eventually charged with the murder, and in her first trial, yeah, she had multiple trials for this, in her first trial, the jury deadlocked. In the second trial, she was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of her husband, and this was on Monday, January twenty-fifth, two 2010, so seven years. After David was killed. This was a Knox County Criminal Court. TBI weapons expert Donald Carmen testified about the alleged murder weapon in the trial. Carmen said that according to the lab tests, the fatal shot was fired between 12 and 14 inches from the victim. The timeline for the day of David Lee's death both gives Rainella an alibi and also leaves a wide space of time where she could have committed the murder. Raynella Leith called 911 to report finding her husband dead in their bed at 11.23 a.m. Her youngest daughter left the home at 8.20 a.m. Raynella told the Knox County Sheriff's Office that she and her husband watched televangelist Joyce Meyer on TV together, and she then prepared him breakfast. She said she loaded clothes into the dryer, turned it on before leaving home. At 9.50 a.m., Raynella called David Lee's daughter, saying she was paying a visit to David's ailing mother at Park West Medical Center and expressing worry her husband may have gone to the gym to work out without eating his breakfast. Hospital personnel confirmed she was at the hospital. Soon after, her youngest daughter called her and asked her to bring medicine to Carnes High School because she wasn't feeling well. School personnel confirmed Rainella Leith left the high school at 10.45 a.m. She stopped to talk to a neighbor as she drove into the couple's driveway. Testimony showed David Leith had been dead for some unknown period before his body was discovered. The blood had congealed and the body showed signs of settling of blood that takes place over time after death. But no time range of death was established. Prosecutors argued that Rainella Leith killed her husband soon after her daughter left the home, staged the suicide, and then set out to establish an alibi by calling Wilkerson, David's daughter, visiting with her mother-in-law, and then going to her daughter's school. The defense pointed out that Rainella would have had no idea her daughter would get sick at school or that the neighbor would be at his mailbox as she pulled into the driveway. If her intent was to craft a fake alibi, she wouldn't know these things. The defense argued David was showing signs of dementia and he was too proud to be a burden on his family. The state did a good job proving that David Leith was slain at the hands of someone else. The evidence showed an order of shots fired made it impossible for David to have fired the third shot as he would have been dead after the second one. The first shot struck the headboard above David's pillow. The second shot struck him in the forehead as he raised up from the pillow. That shot severed his brainstem. stem. The third shot was fired into the mattress. Prosecutors theorized his widow was trying to get gunshot residue on his hand by placing the gun in his hand and firing. Residue was found on the back of his hand but not on his fingers or palm. The defense tried to theorize to say his body may have convulsed with the gun still in his hand causing it to fire. David Leith was found naked, his body partially covered with a quilt and sheets, and a pillow tucked between his legs. His wife said he always did that when sleeping. His uneaten breakfast was on a tray next to the table. There was no suicide note. Defense did not deny that the bulk of evidence supported the notion that David was asleep and awakened by the first shot and then killed by the second shot. However, they pointed out that all they did was possibly prove David had not killed himself. There was nothing to prove Raynella Leith was the killer. Raynella had David Leith's body cremated the day after he died, even though he owned a plot in the cemetery where his parents are buried, and his friends say he was opposed to cremation. An autopsy was conducted hours earlier before the cremation, his body contained unprescribed sedatives and painkillers. So before we move on to the story of Rainella's first husband, let's talk about some things you might have noticed in this one. Rainella called David's daughter on the way to visit his mother. She mentioned she was worried David might have gone to the gym without eating his breakfast. Why bring that up at all? It sounds like she was trying to explain it, explain why there would be uneaten breakfast on the table because she knew he wouldn't eat it because he was already dead. Presumably, if he was alive and wanted her to make him breakfast, then he would eat it. And why would he be lying with a pillow between his legs, something he does when sleeping, and shoot himself? I could see him lying there in bed to do it, But wouldn't you be thinking less about the comfort of sleeping, you know, ranging the pillow between your legs, et cetera, and and just more about the fact that you're doing this? It sounds much more plausible that he was sleeping when he was shot. Raynella's first husband's death was ruled an accident at first. But in 2006, authorities looked closer at the case, most likely because of the strange circumstances of David Lee's death. Ed Dossett was in the late stages of terminal cancer when he died. He was found trampled to death by cattle on the family farm. Raynella Dossett, as she was then, was a respected nurse. Ed Dossett was the county prosecutor, although in Tennessee they are called District Attorney General. The couple, who married in 1970, lived with their three children on the Dossett family farm just west of town. In 1992, when Ed Dossett was found dead in the corral, the death was ruled an agricultural accident. His wife told authorities he had been trampled by cattle. As he was in the late stages of terminal cancer, she explained that she had helped him out to the barn to feed the cattle at his request. The medical examiner at the time, Randall E. Padigo, said the domestic cattle stampede did raise questions but about insurance fraud, not murder. There was a lot of speculation that it was made to look like an accidental death in order to collect double indemnity. This was even some talk, or there was even some talk, that it might have been Ed Dossett's idea. In an autopsy performed by Pedigo, evidence was found of traumatic injuries consistent with trampling and a hoof print in the middle of the bib of Mr. Dossett's overalls. But when the current medical examiner, Dr. Dorinka Malizanik-Polchan, reviewed the file as part of Leith's investigation, she found that those injuries were non-life-threatening. Instead, what she found was Mr. Dossett's morphine level was so extraordinarily high that it is unlikely any human could function in an ambulatory manner or continue to live. In 2006, Rainella Dossett Leith was indicted in his death charged with administering an overdose of morphine. Now remember, Raynella was a nurse, so she would know what a lethal dose of morphine would be. Ed Dossett's death was in 1992. Six months after he was killed, his widow, Raynella, married his friend and neighbor, David Leith. Yep, that same David Leith. Friends and neighbors were shocked that she had married again so soon. Friends did say the couple was happy, though, at least at first. He built her a greenhouse. She bought him a custom truck with a matching horse trailer. A little over two weeks later, Ms. Dawson Leith learned that her dead husband might have fathered another son with a woman who worked in his office. In the midst of a divorce, the woman told her husband, Steve Walker, that one of their two sons was actually fathered by Ed Dawson. Steve Walker told Rainella this. Rainella then pretty much went batshit. She lured Mr. Walker to a barn on her farm after she told him that she had found some papers related to the child that her husband and his wife may have had together. After they were both in the barn, she opened fire on him. According to Steve Walker, he ran and she chased him across the hayfield, shooting at him. She ran out of ammunition and then yelled at him that she would kill him and the mother and raise the child herself. Mrs. Dossett Leith was charged with attempted murder in this incident, but pleaded guilty to a lesser charge and basically ended up doing six years of probation. Then the charge was expunged. It was only months after she completed her sentence that Mr. Leith was found dead. He had signed deeds and a will, and Rainella would inherit all of the couple's property. Rainella Dawson Leith was going to be tried for two murders, her first and her second husband. They decided to go with David Leith's first. The 2009 trial ended in deadlock, 11 to 1, and the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. A year later, trial two, the case was the same, but this time the jury was unanimous. Rainella was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. David's daughter, Cindy Wilkerson, felt happy and that justice was served. Because Rainella was behind bars for life, the prosecutors decided to drop the murder charges for Ed Dossett. They wouldn't have done so if they had known what was coming next. In a shocking twist six years later, Raynella's conviction was thrown out. The reason given was that the trial judge had been seriously impaired with the pain pill drug addiction and was kicked off the bench. So 14 years later, after David's death, it is now trial number three. In May 2017, it began. Raynella was a 68-year-old grandmother by then. In this trial, they showed a picture of the cylinder in the Colt 38 revolver. The three fired rounds have small indentations or hammer strikes in the center of the casing. The unfired rounds do not. Prosecutors tell how the clockwise rotation of the cylinder tells the order of shots. The first two cartridges are from silver Remington bullets. Fragments of those were found in the wall and David Leith's head. But the third is different. It's a gold Winchester found shot through the mattress. If that gold bullet was fired last, as the prosecution believes... That mean it came after that means it came after David Leith was already shot in the head, severing his brainstem. The medical examiner is asked if David Leith could be in any way capable of any voluntary movement after the bullet transected his brain. The answer is, none whatsoever. When they talk about the blood splatter, they explain that the only way it works is if Rainella is standing on the side of the bed, she misses. He raises up, and she hits him with the second shot, and he falls straight back down where he was found. He could not lay in the bed and face the direction he was in and get that type of blood splatter on the wall. David's daughter testifies that Ronell had never called her at work before, but she did the day of David's death and asked her if she had seen her dad and then talked about how she was worried he might have went to work out without eating his breakfast. The jury does not get to hear about Steve Walker and Raynella trying to shoot him on her farm. They also don't get to hear about Ed Dossett and how he died. How Raynella was implicated in his death. In an extremely unusual turn of events, just as the jury is about to be heard, something happens that literally makes people's jaws drop. A routine request A motion called Rule 29, that is done in most trials, asking for the case to be thrown out for lack of evidence, is made. In most cases, the judge simply denies the motion and gives the jury the case. But like so much in Raynella's life, the unexpected happens. The judge grants the motion and throws out the case. Not guilty. She's acquitted. The defense is celebrating. Everyone else is stunned. The jury, at first shock, becomes angry. Later, when interviewed, three jury members tell how they would have voted. They all say guilty. They are asked if they feel Rainella got away with murder. They all agree she absolutely got away with murder. They also say other jury members say they would have voted guilty. It was reported that there were people Rainella knew in college that said she was great. She was a lot of fun as long as you didn't cross her. It was also reported that prosecutors were intending to file a petition to exhume the body of Raynella's first husband, Ed Dossett, to gather more evidence. The intention was to decide whether to refile charges for her, uh, I'm sorry, recharges against her for his death. Rainella, after all of this, moved back to the farm, the farm where all of that happened, I could find no further updates at this time, but if we do come across some, we will certainly mention it uh, in some feedback or follow up at the end of the next episode. Please stay tuned for the historical clips of similar cases from back in history. And thank you for listening. Our first one comes from March 26, 1909. Woman Poisoner Kills Husband for a fee, or husbands for a fee. 300 deaths attributed to a Russian prisoner. London, March 25th, 1909. A dispatch from St. Petersburg says that a woman named Popova has been arrested at Samara, charged with having poisoned at least 300 persons during the last 30 years. She made a business of ridding wives of their husbands for a small fee. This one is September 6th, 1912, Port, Louisiana. Woman and man admit a compact to kill spouses, confess when they are arrested and jailed to await trial for murder. Poison placed in coffee. Watson says he caused wife's death by drug, which she swallowed in June. Signed confessions were given to Sheriff Florney this afternoon by A.L. Watson's a Logans contra- contractor of Jefferson, Texas, and Mrs. C.C. Bailey, formerly of Flanagan, Texas, who were arrested, suspected of murdering the woman's husband. Bailey's head was crushed with an axe Monday night while he was asleep at a sawmill at Met- Mel- Metcalf, Louisiana. Sorry about that. The prisoners related a story of a compact that resulted not only in Bailey's death, but also in the murder of Mrs. Watson. According to the compact, Watson was to kill his wife, which he did by poisoning her last June. Mrs. Bailey was to kill her husband, and she tried to do so by poisoning his coffee. Bailey was made ill, but recovered. Watson then decided to do the killing himself and arranged for Mrs. Bailey to leave home for a visit to her father. Mrs. Bailey was not put in jail until the day after Watson was arrested but a demented woman on the upper floor during the night made him think that his accomplice had told the story and his nerve gave way and the confession followed. Watson and the woman were allowed to converse and the man told her that he loved her and that he was willing to die that she might be saved. This one is from July 15th, 1923, and it's in Warsaw. Woman kills six husbands and escapes her captors. The deaths within two years of six men married by Marie Ferdinova, a Russian woman living at Lotz, finally resulted in police investigation. Detectives found that she had purchased poison several times and arrested her as a result. Pleading for a few minutes to dress to accompany the officers, she went into her room, jumped out of a window, and fled in her motor car in the direction of German Cilicia. This one is a little bit longer because it is just so fascinating. Uh, There's a lot in the newspapers on this one. It is from March 30th, 1946 in British Columbia, Canada. Two separate charges of murder were laid Friday against both Mrs. Evelyn Dick and William Bohosik in connection with the torso slaying of Mrs. Dick's husband, and the finding of a baby's body encased in cement at Mrs. Dick's home. This was really well covered in the newspaper. It was a huge um, case, and literally people would stand outside the courtroom waiting to get in. Uh, People would save seats for each other, would eat their lunch at the seats, trying to maintain their spot so that they could be in the courtroom for the coverage. Um... And I'm thinking maybe we will do a full episode on this sometime as a bonus episode because there is just so much to this story. Um, But here's a little bit more that I found than just that newspaper clip. Uh, After being reported missing for several days, John Dick's torso was discovered on March 16th by the side of the mountain near Albion Falls. This set off a series of trials of Dick's estranged wife, Evelyn Dick, her father, Donald McLean, and her boyfriend, Bill Bohosik. People across the country became captivated by such a young, attractive woman being involved in an unimaginable, grotesque crime. And there was more interest as details emerged about her sexual adventures with prominent members of the community. But more than that, there was her success at going into hiding with a new identity after her release on parole in 1958. There's just so much to this case. Uh, Evelyn Dick was born Evelyn McLean, October thirteenth, 1920, in Beamsville, Ontario, and Evelyn was the only child of Scottish immigrants Donald and Alexandra McLean. The year after her birth, the McLean family moved to Hamilton, Ontario. As Evelyn grew into an attractive young woman, Alexandra encouraged her to use her good looks to entice men into buying her expensive gifts, such as jewelry and furs. Evelyn's lovers included several wealthy and prominent prominent Hamiltonians. In July 1942, Evelyn gave birth to a daughter, whom she gave over to her mother's care. A second pregnancy ended in stillbirth, and in September 1944, Evelyn gave birth to a boy, whom she named Peter. She returned home from the hospital without the baby, claiming that she had given him up to the Children's Aid Society for adoption because her father didn't want another child in the house. In the summer of 1945, Evelyn met John Dick, a Russian immigrant employed as a streetcar driver. At age 39, he was 15 years her senior, but Evelyn mistakenly believed that he had a comfortable income and that he would support her extravagant lifestyle. As soon as Evelyn realized that Dick was not financially well off, she deserted him and resumed an affair with a man named Bill Bohosik. John Dick disappeared in the first week of March 1946. He was last seen alive on March 6 in a Hamilton restaurant. On the 16th of March 1946, children hiking along a trail on Hamilton Mountain, part of the Niagara Escarpment, made a shocking discovery a human torso with two gunshot wounds to the chest. The remains were soon identified as those of John Dick. Police took in Evelyn for questioning, but she denied any knowledge of John Dick's fate. While she was being questioned, investigators searched her house. In the attic, they found a suitcase that contained a concrete encased body of an infant. It later proved to be that of Evelyn's son, Peter. Though the evidence against Evelyn was mostly circumstantial, the jury found her guilty of the murder of John Dick. The judge sentenced her to death, but her attorney successfully appealed. Evelyn's case was taken over by John J. Robinet, a skilled courtroom lawyer whose defensive strategies in the trials would make him famous. Robinette impressed upon the jury the strong possibility that Donald McLean, Evelyn's father, had killed Dick. This time the jury found Evelyn not guilty. In the trial for the murder of baby Peter Robinette brought in a psychiatrist who testified that Evelyn had endured a traumatic childhood and had the emotional mentality of a 13 year old. The jury found her guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter and the judge sentenced her to life imprisonment. Donald McLean was found guilty of being an accessory to murder and sentenced to five years in prison. He received an additional five years for theft. Bohosik was cleared of all charges. We are going to read one more article on Evelyn that I thought you might find interesting. It's from the Calgary Herald in uh, Alberta, Canada. It's from October 18, 1946. And it is titled, Students of Human Nature, Please Note. Are you a young woman of reasonably presentable appearance? Would you like to be famous? Would you like to have crowds fighting for a glimpse at you? Would you like to have your every word and gesture make headlines? Would you like to receive lots of fan mail? Would you like to have flowers and perfumes and nylon sent to you by unknown admirers? If you would, you can arrange it quite simply. All that's necessary is to get yourself accused of the murder of your husband. If it's a nice gory one, for example, that can feature in the headlines as a torso slaying, so much the better. At least that has been the experience of Mrs. Evelyn Dick of Hamilton. The Evelyn Dick case, which ended this week in a verdict of guilty and a death sentence which will be appealed, is the most sensational thing Hamilton has seen in years. The steel strike couldn't begin to compete with it. Crowds besieged the courthouse at every sitting. On one occasion, a courtroom door was torn from its hinges. Several women tried to assure themselves of seats at an afternoon sitting by bringing sandwich lunches and hiding out in the ladies' washroom during the noon recess. Observed one Hamilton policeman, "It's like the Lewis Con fight. You could sell tickets here at twenty-five bucks a throw." Mrs. Dick received letters and parcels galore. She got a bracelet, nylons, a pearl necklace, and clustered pearl earrings. She said they were from a friend, a girlfriend. Lipstick and nail polish, facial preparations, colognes, and perfumes. On her 26th birthday last Sunday, there were a dozen carnations to Evelyn Dick from an admirer. There's only one thing about this brand of popularity. It's rather too apt to be short-lived. Neville Heath, the ex-RAF lash murderer who accorded terrific acclaim in England, had his career cut short a few days ago. Nothing remains of him now but an effigy in Madame Tussaud's wax works. And like I said, maybe we'll do a full one on uh, Evelyn. If I don't know, maybe you all knew about her. I didn't, and I found it fascinating. So um, we'll check into that. So the next one is September 26, 1962, South Africa woman kills three husbands. And this is in Cape Town, South Africa. Cape Town, South Africa, and I find this interesting because of her sentence, so you tell me. Cape Town, South Africa, Sienna Inglebret, 38, who admitted the fatal stabbings of her first two husbands, was found guilty of homicide in the knifing death of her third husband. A judge handed out a five-year sentence and told her, you apparently do not believe in divorce, but you cannot continue to kill your husbands. Uh, not too bad. I guess that's the place you want to be if you're going to be doing that. So, and then the last one is from 2003. I thought we'd bring it up a little closer, Um, but still, it's 15 years ago, people. Can you believe that? British black widow gets life for killing hubby. This was December 16th, 2003. A British woman dubbed the black widow was sentenced to life in prison yesterday for giving her second husband a fatal dose of antidepressant masking its bitter taste in spicy curry. A jury at London's Old Bailey convicted Dina Thompson, 43, of killing Julian Webb in June 1994 by feeding him the antidepressant dothapin. The death was initially ruled a suicide, but Webb's body was exhumed in 2001 after Thompson was accused of trying to kill her third husband with a knife and baseball bat during a sexual bondage session. Thompson, acquitted of that crime in 2000, has been dubbed the Black Widow by the British press. For a decade, she has targeted men sexually, financially, and physical. The men of Great Britain can feel safe tonight knowing she has been taken off the streets, said Detective Chief Inspector Martin Underhill. And that's it for this week's episodes uh, and our historical clippings. Please um, visit the website uh, if you'd like to give any feedback or have any episode suggestions. It is uh, Cherry Avenue True Crime And uh, there's also a Facebook page as well. You can just look it up under True Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next week, stay safe out there.